There are several takeaways from this book that I, I hope readers get to have more room in their lives for friendships that might surprise them. I think I did a pretty good job of showing how we took care of each other, that I can write a letter and it sustained him when he was in solitary confinement. That just, right now I just have goosebumps, like I helped him. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week on In Good Faith, producer Heather Bigley sat down with Lisa Knopp, the author of seven books, including her most recent, From Your Friend, Carrie Dean. Letters from Nebraska's Death Row. Lisa is an associate professor of English at the University of Nebraska-Omaha, where she teaches courses in creative nonfiction. She holds degrees from Iowa Wesleyan, Western Illinois, and the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Her latest book tells the story of the unlikely friendship between Knopp and convicted murderer Carrie Dean Moore. Carrie killed two men in August 1979 and was convicted and sentenced to death in 1980. He was executed in 2018. The book, part journalistic recounting and part heartfelt memoir, references 320 letters from Carrie over the course of 23 years. Here is Lisa Knopp recounting how she first met Carrie. I had been active in protesting the death penalty in Nebraska. And after a particularly awful execution, it was the crowd that supported it seemed like a lynch mob to me. There was an activist who encouraged us to, to get to know somebody on death row. So it wasn't an abstract issue. And so I, I decided I would just join Nebraskans against the death penalty for one of their death row visits. And then I would have met the challenge and that's over. But I went twice. And on the second time, I met Carrie Dean Moore. And I just, just liked him. I just found him very sincere and direct and polite and vulnerable. One of the first things he told me is that he had killed two people and he had confessed to it and God had forgiven him for it. At that time, I hadn't talked to many people who had committed murder and I didn't know how unusual it was for somebody just to be so frank about that. He needed help finding a new pastor. The person who'd been coming to visit him was was very old and needed to retire. And so we became friends because we exchanged several letters while I found some people in my church who could visit with him. I was moving to Illinois, so I couldn't, but I found some people who could. And by that time, we had exchanged some very warm personal letters, and I had no intention of being anyone's pen pal. And if I was going to pick a new friend in this world, it wouldn't be somebody who had committed two murders and had a death sentence. And then there were just some other sharp differences. I I discovered that we were of different political parties. We're on different ends of the Christian spectrum with him being more evangelical, me being more progressive. I don't label myself as a progressive, but I have some leanings there. He had a 10th grade education. I have a PhD. People like us don't become friends. I mean, any one of those is enough In America, people become friends with people who are like them. And so, you know, the question is, what 
allowed this to be a 23-year friendship. And, and I think that in spite of our differences, there were many things that we did share. He was always intensely interested in me and my life and what went on with my children, how my parents were doing. Um, he prayed for us. I always felt that he was just very, very interested, concerned about us. We had great discussions about religion. At times, there were some pretty sharp differences, um, but we had a lot of common beliefs too. And I think having that deep spiritual connection, and I consider him one of my great spiritual teachers, I let him teach me and lead me into a different relationship with God. All of that just made it a remarkable, unusual, and very nourishing friendship. The story is balancing two faith journeys. One is yours, and one is Carrie Dean's. So do you mind talking to us a little bit about your own search? A lot of people don't realize that Protestantism in America is every bit as divided as the political landscape. Some of the evangelical churches and then the social gospel and even um, just the mainline churches, you know, Methodist, Presbyterian, ELCA, Lutheran, Church of the Brethren, they're just talking about different things. And faith looks different in both places. And I think I'm an unusual person. I've, I belong to some churches on both sides. And I find I have never been in a church where I didn't find something valuable. I will just say that. I've never been in a church where I didn't find something to concern me. I liked going to evangelical Pentecostal because I learned how to pray there. And I learned that the relationship of God is what Christianity is really about. Knowing, ah, my heart swells when I say this, knowing that I am God's beloved and God is my beloved. That is, I think, the most important message of Christianity. There are many other important ones, but for me, I had to go to those churches to learn about that and utter faith and prayer as where you go when there's a problem, as in, let's drop everything right now and pray because we know we will get a response. The social gospel churches, um, I really, I really love the way they take Jesus is teaching to the streets and try to find ways just to make life better for people, um, feeding them and clothing them and helping them find ways to pay their electric bill or to get an education. Just so, so many important things going on there. But I didn't get enough of the personal stuff, the idea that God could talk to me. I didn't get that in the social gospel churches like of my childhood and much of my adulthood. And I have to say, the evangelical Pentecostal, they are doing good works, but I kept running into some political ideas there that were just really hard for me to hear. So in, in some ways, I feel, even though I can see something good in every church I've been in, I feel like I don't fit any place. When I'm in one, I'm missing something. Evangelical, I'm missing the social gospel. When I'm in the social gospel, I'm, I'm missing the personal relationship with God. I've just had to find a way to piece something together so I can have what I need. Well, I was going to say that just reminds me, uh, the New Testament, you know, there's this promise we're given that we will no longer be strangers. And yet sometimes 
even in the place where that's supposed to be true, we we can feel like strangers. I, I think comfort is important that we look for churches where we can be comfortable and where we can give and get what we need. I could say that it, it, it's good for us to stretch a bit, but I also think God provided all these different ways for us to experience that belovedness. How did Carrie Dean fit into your faith journey? Oh, his faith was so deep and so personal. This man just knew that God loved him. There was just no question. God loved him and was there all of the time. And everything he needed was in the Bible. He had eight execution dates. I knew him for five of those. Seven of them were stayed. And sometimes he got pretty close to the electric chair. Later, it was lethal injection. If that isn't a test of somebody's faith, he is probably one of the maybe two or three really, really amazing Christians I've known in my life that just just provoke me to go deeper myself. That's an interesting word, provoke. Yeah, yeah. He would push me. And I will, you know, sometimes I would get a letter from him and I wouldn't open it right away because I knew that what was in there would be wonderful. And also sometimes I would feel like I'm I'm just not the Christian I want to be. I'm not the surrendered Christian. Here's a letter from one, and I'm not anywhere close to that. So yeah, provoked. Well, what about Carrie Dean's journey? The book is very interesting to me because something you said earlier, Carrie Dean starts your relationship with God has forgiven me. And so we don't have in the book sort of that repentance process that we, we aren't witness to it. And so we get the details of the murders that he committed, but then we meet him as that new person. The last sum of his life, when I knew I was writing this book and he gave me his blessings and said, I'll help you any way I can. There were two things I felt I really need to know. We had talked about the murder kind of obliquely. I said, you've got to tell me the details. He said, I don't want to, but I will. And I didn't get all my questions answered. We just didn't have time, but he, he tried. I said, I, I've never asked you how you came to be a Christian. I met him as a fully mature Christian, just living the life. And how did that come about? He told me several things. I pulled several things from the letters. And what surprised me is is that I actually think he became a Christian as a teenager before he committed some crimes, including murder. He had been baptized as a child in the Mormon church. And he found something there. He later didn't think very highly of the LDS church because of some treatment he received there. But that was a positive experience for him as a child from what he told me. And then when he was in what he called a boys reformatory, he was baptized. He asked to be baptized and had some meaningful worship experiences there. So he was maybe 15, 16. Then in his early 20s, after he had committed murder and was in jail waiting to be sentenced, he had asked for a pastor to come visit him. And I think that was from the first church that baptized him. And he was, he was disappointed that he couldn't get the spiritual help that he wanted from that man. So that indicates to me that he had been a believer 
at an earlier point. And that was someplace he turned to at times. He felt that there was something there for him. In prison, I don't know when he became the person that I know. If it was a series of just small incremental steps, or if there were some leaps forward, I I never learned that. But he said there was always somebody there. You know, Anne Lamont's lily pads, there was always another place to step where you could find God or, or somebody who was working for God. He said, always somebody. There was always somebody there that God provided for him. So that is what I pieced together. I wish I had an hour with him just right now to clarify some of this. I often don't know what I don't know until I write about it. And by then he was gone. Today on In Good Faith, we're hearing from Lisa Knopp in Lincoln, Nebraska. Lisa is an award-winning author and associate professor of English. Up next, Lisa discusses the difficulty of depicting a friend, despite all their flaws, on the page. There's this section, this is in Chapter 5, where you say, Had Carey considered himself a Christian when he killed those two men, how did he reconcile these different aspects of himself? Had he temporarily lapsed during that week in August 1979, had his gradually growing faith in God's promises been too frail to withstand the temptations he was facing? So now that you've written the book and you've had all this time to think about it, how would you answer those questions? I cannot answer them for him, but I can answer them for myself. That even though I'm a Christian, I sin many times a day. You know, I'm not committing murder, but I think to God, all sin is the same. And so if I'm sitting there grading papers on the Sabbath, I'm not keeping the Sabbath. And when I don't honor relationships the way I should, I can go on and on. Believe me, there are many sins every day. And yet I'm a Christian. That's, that's just the territory. So I really, I, I don't even know how, this is an excellent question, and I don't know how to answer it is the truest thing I can say. I wonder if actually this speaks more to how our communities support our young people in a lot of ways. One of the things I was struck by as I read your work was how hard it was to get someone to work with people in the prisons and to offer Bible studies. And we've had other guests on the show a couple of months ago. We had two young men who are part of a Muslim prison ministry. And again, they they had seen this need, right? People in prison are people and they need our help. And if we can offer the support that they need, then this will go into their rehabilitation. So I feel like as much as the book is about Carrie Dean and as much as the book is about the Nebraska prison system, there's still very much about what are we doing as Christians to help fellow Christians? And are we following the mandate of Jesus? The only time I saw him angry in our entire friendship was when he was writing to all these pastors, could you please come and visit me or could you please sponsor the death row Bible study? Nobody wanted to. And he was, he was just like, don't they read Matthew 25? Don't they? A lot of us in churches don't do everything we're supposed to. Of course, somebody should come and minister to people on death row. They should have people to choose from. And in fact, I found three pastors for him over the time we knew each other. I don't know what would happen if I hadn't been the one to ask, if it had been Carrie Dean. And I felt that maybe 
that was one thing I was sent to do, to be the person to speak for this need so that pastors would be maybe less frightened of going there. Maybe they would understand what the need was and what would be expected of them. But I'm I'm struck that I had three times I, I had to do that. We've both read In Cold Blood, and I've always been disturbed by that book because I felt like Capote focused so much on his two main characters, the murderers, that the family that was murdered didn't deserve his attention, right? This is how it came across, as much as those two murderers did. And so that had to be something that you were thinking about as you were putting your own manuscript together. Did you find yourself in dialogue with that book at all? Yes. Um, actually, I have taught that book before in, in a narrative nonfiction course. Capote does deal with the clutter family, the murdered family in, in the first part of the book. And if you remember, he whips back and forth between their story and the death car coming across Kansas, just back and forth, back and forth, boom. And you don't know exactly what happens when, when they meet. It's, it's very cinematic. It's very powerful, very dramatic. He doesn't dig into their lives anywhere near the way he does, especially Perry's. One of the troubling things, many troubling things about that book is that I think it was Perry asked Capote, what are you going to call this book? And he, in cold blood, and they discussed that. And it was, it was a troubling title for Perry. And then Capote, some of what I've read about him, I just was concerned about how he wanted that story to end. Like that maybe an execution would be the better ending. And so when I embarked on this story with Carrie Dean, I just was fearful that I would think of the story more as a writer would than a friend would. I gave him an annotated table of contents the last few months of his life. And I said, read it, pick it apart, anything you want. But I said, I could end this book with a chapter called 60 and just explain what it was like for you to be 60 years old, still on death row, facing another execution, and then being returned to your cell. Because I said, you know, there's a really good chance you will have a stay. And he could have appealed his execution date because they were probably using drugs that were not obtained under the best circumstances. He had grounds for an appeal. He didn't want to. And of course, he didn't appeal and, and he was executed. I was really glad to see that that was not the ending I wanted, that I really wanted to write that chapter called 60. And I really wanted him to be there to read over the book, to talk through it. There were so many things we hadn't gotten to. There's always a question when you write about other people, how you portray them. And that starts with Carrie Dean with 320 letters. I could have chosen different excerpts and created a slightly different character. This is my interpretation of him. It's the person I knew, but I don't claim to know him well, like you do the people you live with. And, and even sometimes you don't know the people you live with that well. Writing about the man, I realized there's actually a lot I didn't know about him. It would have really been nice if he had been returned to that cell and we could have done some more work on this book together. And I'd still be getting letters from him and occasionally going down to the death row Bible study. So 
I guess another question I have is the the families of the two murdered men. You talk very frankly about the impact that that those deaths had on those families. Um, how hard it is for them every time there's an execution date to go through like all this new cycle and being contacted. And now this book is coming out. What was your relationship with those with those families? What are you hoping will be possible for them because of this book? Well, I did not have any contact with them. I wrestled with whether I should write letters to them, see if any of them will talk to me. And ultimately, I didn't because I felt I had too much to deal with already. And I made the choice to present their story entirely from newspaper and television news. I just pieced it together from that and tried to document in text where I got everything. One of the victim's children did write some letters to Carrie Dean, and he gave those letters to me. It was painful to read. And I would, but I would not have used anything from those letters without permission. So it was just telling me just the pain and anger this person had many, 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 many years after those murders. It was not over for them. Carrie would be kind of quiet about stuff like that. I, I don't know if he didn't know what to say or he was overwhelmed by it. He didn't talk about the victim's It was a hard choice how to present those murders, how to present the murder that my friend did. Yeah, I hope I I did justice. That's all I can say. Well, let's talk a little bit about the decision on the form that you made. Not chronological. In fact, it feels uh, topical. So why did you choose this form? And after writing it, I don't think we ever get exactly what we wanted from our writing process, but did did it come close enough? Um, yes. Now I have to say that I had suggested to him several times that he write a book about his life, just this transformation, let people know about it. He was pretty humble. He said, I have a story to tell. Nobody wants to hear it, blah, 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 blah. So I didn't make any headway with that. And then the last summer of his life, I said, why don't we co-author a book? And it'll be a book about our friendship. He said he didn't want to do it. You know, he was just ready to die. He didn't want to do that. But he said, you go ahead and I'll help you. You have my blessings. And he said, if it's a story about our friendship, you've got to write about both of us. You know, you've got to reveal both of us. And he said, you have to tell some juicy things about both of us. <laughs> Juicy. I don't know. I don't know if I did that or even if I have juicy things to tell. But but he was pretty insistent that I needed to reveal myself. And so I tried to honor that. And of course, if it is a book about friendship, it does need to be his life, my life, and the interactions between us. And I think I did that pretty well. I think I did it primarily through the letters because in the letters, he always told me what he had read in my letter or what we had talked about recently. So in the letters, there was a lot about his response to me, as well as things that were going on around him. But I think I did a pretty good job of showing how we took care of each other, that I can write a letter and it sustained him when he was in solitary confinement. Um, That just right now, I just have goosebumps like, I helped him when he was in solitary confinement. 
And over the years, all of the advice he gave me, he was always there, weighing in, guiding. I think I, I think I got that across in the book. Um, I could always, as as you point out, we can always write more drafts of everything. There are several takeaways from this book that I, I hope readers get, but a really important one. I think we live in a culture that undervalues friendship. We're limited in where we look for our friendship. So I, I want this to inspire people to have more room in their lives for friendships that might surprise them. And, and I think I did that. A few people have read the book have said, what an amazing friendship you two had. That was their first response. And I said, yes. What are you proud of about this memoir and what surprised you about writing it? But I think I also want to ask, how did God surprise you as you were writing this memoir? Well, God surprised me with this friendship. And I'm not a person that sticks with things. I can be kind of fickle. And there were times I could have been a better friend, but I stuck it out so long. Also, this is one of the lessons in life that you don't know what you have until it's gone. That's really simple. But as I'm writing about this man, I just, I didn't know how much wisdom and, and how much God was in him until I set out to write about him and just how privileged I was to know him. In writing about it, it was, it was at times overwhelming. What a gift. When I read about what an influence he was in the prison itself, how many people were brought to a religious life because of this man. It's astounding. It is. He had a wide ministry there supporting people, and he didn't have much money, but sometimes he got Bibles to him and giving people advice, and not just Christians. You know, he had a letter-writing ministry to all kinds of people. Thanks again to Lisa Knopp for speaking with In Good Faith about her friendship with Carrie Dean Moore and her new book, From Your Friend, Carrie Dean, available from Cascade Books. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Our episode was produced by Heather Bigley and engineered and edited by Peter Ellison. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.